Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. I've got Dusty and Sient here with me. I got the name first this time. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> He's special. Special for the day. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the gameplay and general design of Highway to the Moon. This is continuing the series of podcasts about the development of Vernacular Games' first product. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and start this off here. So uh, Highway to the Moon, as uh, was stated in our very first cast about this, is a top-down scrolling shoot-em-up. Basically, you're looking at the characters from up above, and they're moving toward the... Everything is coming at you from the top of the screen, and you're basically blowing everything away. This is a well-trodden genre. It's been in... Um, our, it's one of the earliest arcade-style games that, you've, uh, that has ever been released. I mean, you go back to Galaga, Space uh, Invaders. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say Space Invaders is probably the earliest major yeah. example you'd find of this. Yeah. Um, technically, I think Highway probably fits in the subcategory of twin stick shooter. Mm-hmm. The difference being a traditional, traditional, uh, traditional shmup is one where you shoot in a direction. Uh, generally, the direction that your ship is facing. Think uh, Centipede, for example, is an older example uh, of a non-scrolling one, but Space Invaders is a similar way. Yeah. Um, yeah. A tr- twin stick shooter is one where you can aim in uh, at least multiple directions, if not all directions. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the things that uh, came out for this particular product. Um, and so uh, one of the first things was just looking at uh, the overall concept of the game, like why why we kind of took some of the directions we took with the um, with the core design. So aiming in all directions, that came out of the idea that it was a dude on a motorcycle, um, which affords a certain level of freedom that like a fixed wing fighter doesn't have. Um, like in most games, the reason why you're shooting forward all the time. Uh, at least in the earlier ones, it was the fact that you're a fixed-wing fighter, so your guns are interred in your frame. They're not going anywhere. They're always going to fire forward. And yeah. also the animation limitation that most old arcades and so forth couldn't have a six six or seven-part animation for a, for a base unit. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing. Admittedly, I didn't know what we were getting into when I made the suggestion of it being a dude on the on a motorcycle. Yeah, that had some some serious ramifications in terms of development. So the idea of that was just to simulate the fact that it was a dude on a motorcycle. It made sense that you that you would be able to aim in all directions because uh, the main character, Jacob Helloway, Jacob's Highway, kind of a reference to Jacob's Ladder since it's going up. Uh, it was actually kind of a play on the concept of in a lot of things where you have something that's leaving Earth and going to space or the moon. They call it Jacob's whatever. Jacob's elevator, Jacob's stairway, Jacob's ladder. I mean, also, if you go back to biblical, that's where the original reference is. So I'm referencing, I'm doing yeah. a reference on a reference. I'm two steps removed anyway. But that's beside the point. Um, so it was due to a motorcycle. Uh, and so that also meant that uh, the road came into, uh, came into being along with that. The concept that you actually needed to be... Um, aware of not only the enemies that were coming at you, but also the environment that you were on, which is a less commonly done thing in uh, in shmups. It kind of goes back to uh, the old Spy Hunter game, right? Yeah, yeah. mostly. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, there's a couple others, but that was the big original influence. Yeah, Spy Hunter was the primary one um, as far as just what I looked at to get some ideas of how this should kind of feel and run. And what to do and what not to do, like curves. 
if you go back and watch, uh, I think it was the, either the NES Spy Hunter or the SNES Spy Hunter, curves do not fare well in that game. Uh, and I specifically avoided those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we, we went for more gaps that you could jump over than curves as much as possible because it turns out eight-directional movement in curves while something is moving towards you is really hard to judge. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, just... I can see curves being a little confusing. We had diagonals for sure, but... Yeah, and a part of that was technical limitations, but it's just when I saw how they implemented it and then thought about exactly how we would do that visibly, it just couldn't quite, couldn't quite in- envision that. Anyway, that was kind of the, the mechan- some of the mechanical portions there. Um, I haven't gotten into the phase, but that comes a little bit later because that, that's a much bigger subject. Well, we should probably go over the basics. Yeah. Just all the basic actions the player can take in the game and the basic actions the AI can take. Yeah, or the road. basic actions. <laughs> you know so, what I meant. <laughs> so, yeah, the general way that the player could interact with the game was they could shoot things, and they could aim in all directions. Shooting was a non-trivial thing. Guns were intended to be a little more interesting, um, and we'll get to that. But the other, um, the other primary interaction that you had in the game was being able to dodge bullets. And specifically, in the original concept, it was just dodging. But the phase made that even more of a thing. Phase was basically, you had a bar, think of like a stab at a bar, you could phase for a, for a certain amount of time, and phasing just removed your physics. You just, yep. you could move anywhere you wanted, nothing, nothing would happen to you. You couldn't fire or do anything active while doing it, but you could move, you could dash, you could do whatever you wanted, except fire a gun. And you moved faster generally, and you dashed further as well, Yeah, while you're phased. Those are the basic actions that the player could take. Um, I don't think there are any others. No, everything else was variants on that. Yeah, then the yeah. then the game itself, the actions it could take against the player were generally speaking, the road could either be completely open, so you could just move wherever you wanted, or it could have holes in it so that you'd have to dodge them or jump over them, or just entire gaps or split or do other f- uh, fancy things that would force you to jump across the screen while still firing at enemies it could also adjust the road speed as well yeah so that it would suddenly become way fast you had to jump quicker and make uh generally generally what we did actually is um, some complicated spots yeah we'd slow down uh, i think there's one area where it speeds up a bit yeah but... yeah and then the enemies generally they could move on the screen or off the screen uh within certain limitations they could fire bullets at the player or in other directions the ai for that basically allowed the bullets to do whatever the bullets were going to do they varied quite a bit from being bullet little tiny bullets that are just aimed at players to missiles that would curve uh coming at the players to bullets that jumped across the screen and then fired bullets at you there was a lot of interesting complicated interactions that yeah. ended up having to be developed but um 90 of the complication in the game was in the ai yeah yeah in the original concept of the design, um, as was stated in our very first one, Jake was originally intended to jump. This was supposed to be in line with his character as a stuntman. So it was like, you know, hey, you're a stuntman, so uh, one of the things that you always think of is you think of, like, Evil Knievel or, well, mostly Evil Knievel. He was the character I, I based him primarily off of. Those guys are always hitting big ramps and going over huge gaps, and so that was a big part of what I wanted in the design that was uh, one of the things that motivated towards the idea that the road had all those gaps and weird things going on. 
But um, as was also stated in the earlier one, there was a technical limitation that would not allow us to simulate jumping in a way that would actually convey it very well. That basically is the option of you want to do it on a motorcycle or you want jumping. Pick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we ended up scrapping the jump idea and went with phase. Um, as was stated before, phase um, allows you to move faster. It basically takes your physics away. That change basically changed the very nature of a lot of elements of the game. It opened up what we could do in the AI sector because now we had a very reliable defensive mechanic that the player just had to manage how much they had. So in a lot of shoot 'em ups AI can get pretty crazy, but it almost always comes down to patterns. Everything has a pattern in most shoot 'em ups This is because in most shoot 'em ups if you get hit, you're dead. You, you just die. You don't get to be hit at all. And so because of this, everything has to be patterns. When you play Toho, there's some randomization, but it always randomizes, stops for a second, and then you can start dodging and so forth. They're uh, more like real-time developing mazes as opposed to, like, bullets. Right, yeah, and that's a tradition in uh, most shoot-em-ups. Because we had phasing, which just said, screw it, I'm going to go invulnerable for a while and just move around the screen, um, which is kind of like, kind of very vaguely like bomb mechanics in other games, excepting that it doesn't change anything about the screen. It just lets you move. We could go crazy, like absolutely crazy, with all of the AI and bullet movements and so forth, so that bullet movements are no longer patterns. They're just whatever we wanted them to be. That bullet could all of a sudden jump across the screen parallel to you and then zoom straight at you because you had a way of dodging. You always did. Uh, that thing can move really, really fast and home in on you. And with a 100% guarantee that it's going to pass over you and its AI could say once it passes over you, it then just goes in a straight line. But until then, it's going to hunt you down and it's going to kill you. But you could just turn physics off temporarily and dodge it. Because of that ability, we could add crazy AI like that. Yeah. It's basically no clip on a button. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, it was a great boon. One of the things that kind of influenced my, I guess you would call it acceptance of this, <laughs> of this concept, was because I really liked the concept of having a defensive mechanic in the game. Um, I mean, that was part of the reason why jumping was a thing, but, I mean, phase was an even stronger one, but one of my favorite shmups of all time was the Ikaruga uh, series, which, that game is based around the idea that you have a way of defending against the bullets, um, because there's white and black bullets, and so you're either a black ship which absorbs black bullets, or a white ship that absorbs white bullets, and that creates the dichotomy of how play functions in that game. And so it becomes slightly more interesting than just moving and trying to get a bead on things while you can. Phase does a similar thing of just making it so that the gameplay can be a lot more dynamic, a lot more interesting. Bosses can be a lot more dynamic and more interesting. And actually, instead of just doing things that are really predictable, um, and I mean, HP also helped in that regard. Um, instead of just doing things that were uh, super predictable, um, it was more a thing of like they would take an action, the player would need to react to the fact that that action was happening because they had a proper reaction that they could take. And then in many situations, the boss would actually be tracking what the player was doing and making and making some decisions about that. Well, some of the later bosses would actually detect that the player is in phase and do specific things then. Uh, I remember... Uh, one of the later bosses would say, oh, the player's phased for a while. I'm going to do something more dangerous the moment they're out of phase. 
or I'm going to drop power-ups with bullets attached to them to try to lure them out of phase, things like that. Yeah, because you didn't have physics, you couldn't pick anything up while you were in phase also. So you, while yeah. you were really defensive, you also couldn't get any better. You were just yeah. stopped. Like, power-ups would actually track you while you're phased, so if you went near them, they'd be like, oh, hey, the player is near me, I should try to go to the player. And then they'd be like, I can't touch you, player, and you're like, I know. Yeah. And then you phase back in and you collect all the power-ups. So that was kind of the impact of phase on, on the design. It was a very big thing. and um, The whole yeah. game was kind of built with it in mind, because it came about so early. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things that I really wanted in the in the development and feel of the game was was the idea that I wanted it to be a little more a little more involved in in certain areas and have a bit more i guess you would call it a bit of a higher skill ceiling to reach um if that makes any sense yeah there's a lot of skill mechanics in the game the dodge one is actually a skill mechanic for example Um, managing your phase is a big area where you can develop a lot of skill as well as well as collecting points oddly enough yes the the mechanic itself if you had full health points would go towards filling this meter because we wanted to give purpose to things. One of the things we didn't have was a leaderboard for people to post to. So it's like, okay, why do we have points then? I think we technically do track the high score. I don't... Uh, sort of. Um, we, it's, it's in it the stats, logged probably. In there. Yeah, it's in your stats. You can check and see what your, your highest score was. But um, the primary reason that points exist in this particular game, to take a phrase from Cienter, we wanted to use all of the buffalo. Everything that was in the game... We wanted to make sure that when we put it in there, there was a reason for it to be there. It wasn't just an ancillary thing. Um, And so points became your primary method of getting into um, ultra-charge mode, as well as uh, a way of getting a nice HP buffer. Right. So it's an interesting mechanic because the way that it works is if you're at maximum health and you collect a certain number of points, then uh, it will give you an additional bonus amount of health on top. So if you take a hit from a, a bullet, it'll drain through that first. But if you fall off the road, it will wipe you all the way down, uh, in Jake's case, to the 75% mark. So you'll go from, say, 150% health to 75% health. So falling off the road is particularly punishing if you've built up a lot of this additional charge. But it does provide you a buffer against bullets. So it lets you be a little bit more reckless that way. Um, but you have to pay more attention to the road to not lose it. Um, and this was actually a part of the whole concept of there being more of a split of skill in the game because starting out, you wouldn't really even necessarily care about the points because, quite frankly, you'd probably be taking so much damage, you're more worried about just, okay, um, just get the HP, destroy these dudes, stay alive as best I can. You probably don't even notice that you can get extra HP. (laughs) No, because you have to have full health to get it. But as you get better at the game and you get better at dodging, you'll pick up enough points and eventually you'll get the visual cue and the sound cue for um, you got extra health. And if you take a moment to look at your HP bar, you'll see that there's a gold bar there now. Yeah. But one of the things that came out is what happens if you get one of these, uh, we call them overcharge packets, Yeah. when you have full overcharge, 200% health. Uh, so what we came up with was ultra charge, which is effectively like... I guess you could uh, qualify it similarly to like a god mode in other games. Mm-hmm. Minor um, god mode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is something that's built into the game. So what happens when you enter this mode is your attack rate increases, you have infinite ammo and infinite phase while the mode lasts. And it gets refreshed by picking up more points. So it becomes this interesting uh, game where you become an avatar of destruction <laughs> as so long as you can feed yourself points. 
you have to keep picking up points to stay in it, and if you yeah. lose your stream of points, it ends. Yeah, like if you lose your stream of points, like one of the big things would be like you take some damage and then you drop out of the mode after taking the damage. Yeah, then, then you're you gonna have a, back in. then you have to get back into it without taking any damage. That is the skill part of it, really, because it becomes a very different game at that point. But there are varying levels of play throughout it where you're at the starting level, so you're really just worried about uh, destroying what you can, dodging what you can, and using phase as efficiently as possible. When you get to the mid-level, then you start doing things like, okay, I can deal with this part pretty well, so let's get as many points as I possibly can and start buffering my health. And then when you're at the top level, then it's a thing of where I'm going to try and avoid getting hit as long as possible so that I can become an avatar of destruction and not care about this particular portion of the level and destroy everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it also bears mentioning our way of handling player failure because that's fairly relevant to this as well. When you lose all of your health, you die. And all that does is it respawns you on the road with a fresh health bar. It uh, gives you the default weapon. So you have no extra better weapon. Mm -hmm. um, default weapon's not awful, but most players are going to prefer something else. Well, yeah. it's, it's DPS is lacking compared to some of the other weapons. It's oomph certainly is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the other critical things is your phase meter resets to standard length. Um, because one of the things that happens is when you pick up phase power-ups, again, wanting to make everything have value. Um, we're like, if you pick up phase power-ups and you have full phase, they don't mean anything, right? So we ended up making them extend your phase bar by a little bit per one you, you pick up. So you can eventually get a double-length phase bar. And having that reset also is, uh, is rather punishing. Yeah, pretty painful. But you don't restart any content at that point. Yeah, and um, that's, that is definitely key. It's not until right. you lose all lives. Yeah, once you lose all the lives, then you get to continue from a checkpoint. One of the things was, was thinking back on some of the history of shmups in general... Um, usually, the way those work is, uh, you know, you go through all of your lives, and then your lives are gone, and then you have to start from the very beginning of the game. You have to put a new coin in. <laughs> that was great design for in the arcades when your intention was, what I want from my player is all of their quarters. Yep, like Dusty said. Ding, ding, ding. But for this, which was not intrinsically a quarter-eating game, so we needed to really look at it from a different standpoint of well, what do we want the player to be doing here? And the, the intention that came to my mind was just, we want the player to be able to learn the game as they play it. Um, so, you know, they might die to something, but they're not taken out of there. So they can continue to go through the level and pick up a little bit more about, okay, so this is what this is like, and this also shows up, and they get to do a bit of forward recon. Uh, this was also helped by the fact that some parts of the levels would uh, loop, so they'd go through do something a couple times, like, for example, I know there's at least one one level where it basically went, so until you cleared all of a particular enemy, it just keep looping the same parts of the road. And so if you died a couple times on there, you'd learn the enemy patterns, you learn what they do, and you'd learn how to play that particular part of the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, I mentioned one of the things that happens is you lose your weapon. So there's a, a default weapon, which does some fairly simple stuff, but then there's the uh, the standard sort of suite of weapons, and there's four of them. Uh, the shotgun, the double machine gun, the laser rifle, and the grenade launcher. There's also a bunch of secret weapons that you get from defeating boss characters, which they drop out of a very specific feature we'll talk about shortly, I'm sure. Yeah. But, uh, Redcoat, how about you give us a rundown of those, uh, those four standard weapons? 
on the guns in general, one of the things was the idea that, again, I wanted there to be a little bit of a skill curve of just like, you start here at this is what it's like to use this weapon just starting out. And then when you're at the top level, uh, you kind of blossom out into mastery of using this weapon. Like they're all still very effective in the standard functionality. But when you get to the top level of using the weapon, you'll very much see the difference. Uh, for example, I'll use the shotgun as, um, as the first example here. So uh, your first instinct with any weapon uh, in a shmup is hold the button down and shoot. Now, this was something that we actually actively discouraged because yeah. you have ammo. So if you just hold down the button and shoot, you run out of ammo pretty quickly and then you're back to the default weapon. Yeah. And it's something that you'll learn after the first time you run out of ammo, most likely. There's Maybe an achievement second. for it. Yeah. <laughs> Five bullets or six, I think. Yes. Uh, that sounds about right. Um, and so you'll learn that after the first time you do that. The reasoning uh, for that is that concept that using these weapons at their top level requires you to actually release the fire button and push it in different rhythms. For instance, for the shotgun in particular, it has a sweet spot timing. What that means is, so the shotgun is, in your, in your standard fare of a shotgun, it creates a small burst of bullets with each shot it makes. If you hold the button, it basically does a rhythm of and during that, it fires in like a 35, 40-degree arc in front of your character. It's, it's actually fairly narrow wad, uh, as I recall. Yeah, it's like 35 degrees or less, something like that, yeah. in yeah. front of your character. It, all of them will hit basically the target you aimed at, or maybe if the target's across the screen, a couple other ones. But not, it's not that wide. But if you let your thumb off the button for a brief period, the spread will actually change in the period of time that you've released the button. So if you had a um, starting out at, like, say, a 35-degree angle, the spread would increase by a certain amount of degrees, like it would go to a um, 45 or possibly even a 60. I think it ended at, like, 100-something. Like, but, yeah. like, it, over the course of, like, a like second and a half, it just something. opens and closes, basically. What Redcoat's talking about here is a mechanic that we implemented called passive charge. Uh, and I call it that because it, it contrasts with the more active charge that people would be familiar with from like Mega Man and Metroid, where you hold down the fire button, it charges up a shot, and then you release. Um, this charges up the shot while you're not holding down the button. And that changes a few things about the way you play. Uh, firstly, it means that you're not keeping a, a finger on a button throughout the entirety of play to get something to happen. It does this uh, push and pull of either I'm attacking or I'm not, but when I'm not attacking, I'm making my attack better. It also has this sort of effect um, with the shotgun in particular because it has a sweet spot timing. You can't wait that long between shots to get the optimum fire, so you can't hold the optimum level. Yeah, because the initial rhythm of you're just holding the button, but to get the best spread and the most amount of bullets, you actually have to go something more like and if you wait too long, you won't actually get the best spread, you'll still have a wider one. That was one of the things that specifically made that weapon work a little bit differently than the others. And all of the different weapons are kind of characterized by not only what their bullets do physically, but also the rhythms that they function on. And so I'll try to be a little bit more brief about the, uh, the other ones. Yeah, this one needed to lay down the, the groundwork. Uh, the one last thing on the shotgun was it's super which was basically, it created 
five balls, which then fired out five shotgun shots at the sweet spot spread. Yeah, at the nearest enemies. So um, just to to cover that mechanic briefly, each weapon had kind of an alternate fire, but kind of a stronger fire that consumed more ammo, but usually had a very powerful effect. Yeah. And a lot of times a very different effect than the standard weapon would have. Yeah. Um, So figuring out when to use those was very, very important to good gameplay. And generally speaking, these also helped with dealing with having a lot of enemies on screen. Like, uh, But we'll get into that. Uh, like the shotgun one, it puts a lot of bullets on screen and it auto-targets. It will actually choose different targets to attack, which helps with letting the player not necessarily get fully overwhelmed. But moving on to the laser rifle, which is probably one of my favorite weapons. The laser rifle was basically almost a direct contrast to the shotgun. Uh, whereas the shotgun had the widespread, uh, wide-angle shot and was really focused on that, the laser rifle had a very focused, um, straightforward shot. And, you know, if you held it, you'd get a nice straight beam, and this had piercing properties, so it would just go through a lot of enemies, but it would only touch them once, um, which was an important thing for balancing that weapon. If you waited, though, um, between shots and let the passive charge actually fill up, um, you'd be able to fire out three longer beams, and these actually had damage over time. So as long as they were touching an enemy, they would continually damage them. Uh, this made this weapon very good against larger enemies, where you could put the hitbox out there and it'd be on it for a decent period of time. Also uh, made it good for turret sniping. Yes, because things that had turrets on them, the turrets would be blocked by the body. But if you fired a laser at it, it would just go straight through and hit the turret, which would uh, save you a little bit of time. And pain. But the uh, the super on the um, on the laser rifle uh, was a very interesting one to develop. So this particular super, the way it works is, it creates a giant blue ball with um, weird runic looking things on it, and uh, the ball just fires out a whole bunch of bullets in a stream that's about you know I'd say about three times the width of your character. Yeah, it's decently wide, um, and it, it fires both forward and back. The The ball itself moves very slowly. And one of the things about this item, it aimed in whatever direction that you were aiming in. So you could do some interesting preemptive coverage by putting it on the field and then having it just continually firing. So any light enemies that were trying to crash into you, they'd run into those bullets first. And it also did a pretty decent amount of damage. It did a lot of damage at one point in time. We found that one rather tricky to balance. Yeah. Uh, It was an interesting deal because we were balancing against the difficulty of use for the weapon because it was a very focused, you need to choose a target and drill it down. Balancing that along with the idea that it is actually fairly limited in just what it's going to hit. Yeah, it's one of those things where because the areas that the bullets, the, the coverage that it has is fairly static once you fire it. Moving enemies won't necessarily stay in it a long time, but when an enemy does stay in it, for enemies that don't move as much or whatever, bosses often fell into this category, it would really pound up a lot of damage quickly. So trying to get it to where it was useful against the rank and file enemies, but not overwhelming the bosses was an interesting challenge, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. So moving on from there, we have the grenade launcher, which is arguably the simplest of the weapons from a, from a player use standpoint. So the grenade launcher uh, fires out a projectile that explodes either when it's near an enemy or when it touches an enemy. I remember specifically the, the way the programming worked was it would slow down and then explode, basically to simulate that it's actually on an arc. 
This weapon, its fire rate was very slow compared to the others. It wouldn't actually keep a continuous stream. Um, so you were very much encouraged to pick and choose your shots with it. Moreover, you could get different distances based on how long you waited with it. So it was a very, it was oddly enough, a very precise weapon, which is not what you normally think of with grenades. Yeah, especially the super on it. The super on the grenade launcher, it was another relatively simple one. Just you fire out a slightly larger grenade, and when it hits an enemy, it creates a horizontal splash of explosions that go left and right on the screen. It's a great clearance weapon, and it also does a decent amount of damage. It's still an odd thought, but the grenade launcher is for people who really want to be precise and just want to get rewarded for hitting the things that they aim at. Yeah, because if you don't hit with that grenade projectile, if it misses all the enemies, it just keeps going off the screen and disappears, and you don't get anything from it. You just waste a pile of ammo. Mm -hmm. And so um, we move on to the double machine gun which, from the beginning, it was supposed to be the simplest of the weapons uh, from a use standpoint. And uh, it turned out to be, from a use standpoint, it's pretty simple to get a, get a handle on. It still had an extra bit to fully utilizing its functionality. But its basic shot was very simple. It just had a, made a nice little V that was arced just enough that most enemies would get hit by both shots. Um, and had one of the highest fire rates um, of any weapon, I believe. Uh, definitely one of the higher ones for sure, yeah. And as long as you're close anyway, you could hit enemies with both spigots. Yeah. yeah. And that was really all there was on that particular part of the weapon. Now, the super, however, had its own little things that it did, because the super actually utilized the passive charge mechanic. So the super specifically created a little flying saucer that would move around the screen and find enemies and shoot them. This is what made it a little bit simpler to use than the others because it's fire and forgets. Just, I need to deal with some stuff. Let's put some more DPS on the screen. All right, you're doing this. You're, the flying saucer is saving my life kind of thing. The passive charge on the weapon would increase the amount of saucers that showed up, um, maxing out at about three, I think. Yes. I think their lifespan was adjusted depending upon how many there were, though. Yeah. Um, I do remember that because it was, uh, it was important to make sure that you didn't just have these forever, uh, didn't just have, like, six of these things flying around. Unless you're in ultra mode. Well, and to make it so that way, holding down the button wasn't as bad. Like, if you needed to fire one off with, like, one or two, it would last a bit longer than if you fired off three. Yeah, there's an intrinsic strategy to making decisions on what you want to work with there. And there isn't really, I won't say that there is really a wrong answer with using that weapon. Um, there's just, you know, maybe a slightly better answer at certain points. Yeah, it, it is a fairly straightforward weapon to use. And the, uh, the auto-targeting drones is extremely useful when it's very hectic. Yeah, and the game gets really hectic. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. It does. But, Looking uh, at you, level three. <laughs> but yeah, so that was the basic idea of the of the core weapons and all of the secret weapons. Um, they so the core weapons were intended to be things that you know you can pick up on how they work um, after minimal uh, minimal ish exposure. Uh, mastering them takes a little bit of time, but it's not. Uh, but understanding the general gist of I use this like this, I use this for this. Um, is supposed to be a generally easy thing to do. 
Yeah, that's kind of the idea there is that those weapons would be relatively straightforward. The secret weapons do all sorts of crazy things, and some of them differ quite a bit depending upon your timing. And like I said, you unlock them with bosses, but the most common way of actually acquiring them in-game is destroying dialogue. Yes. And so this comes back to one of the um, one of the things about limitations. Like earlier on, we had talked about that in the original concept of the design, we had wanted to, well, excuse me, I had wanted to have the text basically have uh, cinematic scenes where it's just like the here's the here's the text, here's a talking head, and that all plays out. But we didn't end up running with that just due to uh, due to limitations and limited time. Yeah, there's a couple of things like you have to take over the player behavior during that time to uh, execute cinematic effects and things like that. It's not just throwing up text boxes on the screen. Yeah, yeah I think it ended up better at the end because just I agree because <laughs> cinematic stuff is is fun and all, but it always drags you out of the game keeps you away you're not really doing anything what we did though however was uh have enemies pop up text boxes which were of course like everything else in the game enemies yeah. <laughs> yeah basically we made dialogue bubbles made enemies that contained them and then characters would just pop those up and then if you'd already read the text and you're like, or you... Uh, or, you tr- or you thought this was a normal shmup and so you've been holding down the fire button the entire time, you just blow the text up. Now you have no idea what's going on, but you, <laughs> you get a power-up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, Maybe. like, you, you might just get a dollar. <laughs> yep, worth a one point. But <laughs> And this was one of the things about the overall design. As you play the game, just naturally, things would unlock as you went along. As you beat bosses, the drop tables would be changed very slightly, specifically for those dialogue bubbles. So if you've beaten a boss, there's a likelihood that you can pick up their weapon from blowing up a dialogue bubble. Yeah. It's an interesting way of making the game change over the course of playing it. Mm-hmm. It does a lot of different things for your um, for your play because once you know how to use those secret weapons, and they do take a little bit of time to, to really understand, but once you know how to use them, they're very powerful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that wraps up most of the core mechanics. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much the core mechanics there. Moving on to like boss design, uh, I think we can hit that kind of briefly. We've talked a lot about it in the uh, in the previous. Well, um, uh, there's uh, one other. It's not quite a mechanic, but character unlocks. It, yeah, that's part of the meta design actually, which I'll get to actually. But yeah, so the general gist of the boss design was the idea that we wanted to make sure that uh, bosses were reacting to the player, the player was reacting to the bosses, and that these could be very dynamic and uh, interesting battles, making it so that it really felt like that you were in a fight rather than in a scripted sequence. Yeah. Uh, I think probably the most potent example of a boss reaction to the player is actually the very first boss you encounter, who asks you to stand down, citizen. Citizen, stand down. If you do not, I will have to fight you. Uh, He says, stand down, citizen. And if you just don't engage him in battle, after a while he says, right, and leaves. And he He just leaves. (laughs) And um, that actually changes things about what everyone else says in the game. Yeah, it ended up meaning that we needed it roughly, like, two scripts yeah <laughs> it was it was a fun little bit and i was really happy we got to, we got that in there because it changed it actually changes the tone of the game significantly because if you just beat him up one of the characters looks at you very differently than if you just let him go it, it gives it a much more lighthearted tone i think 
and it becomes more serious if you stand down. Yeah, that's a little taste of the boss design. Um, but on the meta design, as Dusty was noting, as you go through the game, not only do you unlock weapons, but you unlock playable characters. And it's pretty much everyone that you fight, uh, save for some of the... Uh, standard enemies? Yeah, save for some of the standard enemies. Any boss character, if they could be represented as, as a character on a motorcycle or a character in a tank... Um, or a character on an, on an airplane? Yes, yes. Oh, Bart. I always forget about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bart. Um, but yeah. He's our traditional shmup character. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> but those, um, if they could be represented in that way, then we made a character for them. Because it turned out the character editor was very capable of making dudes. So we made a lot of dudes. We did. It was great. And finally, part of the meta design was the reality alternator. So this was important because um, we wanted the game to actually have kind of a variable difficulty, something that could be defined by the player playing it. And as they play the game, they unlock uh, more things to make it either easier or harder for them. Yeah, so one of the ideas in the vein of using all parts of the buffalo has been mentioned at some point in time during one of these podcasts. Achievements, because uh, we have achievements in the game, unlock different things so there's an achievement uh, for example if you manage to beat the game without falling off the road or if you fall off the road a bunch it either will unlock it that achievement then will unlock the ability in the reality alternator to turn off gravity you can't fall off the road anymore when you turn that off when you turn that option on and so there's different things like that where we can say okay player what do you want from this experience do you want to not have any extra lives in one hit point you're do crazy, you, but you can do that. Do you want to play with the machine gun as your basic weapon instead of your whatever the gun was? Instead of the basic rifle, yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. Like There was all sorts of different ways to to customize your play. They all came from playing the game. Like The more you played the game, uh, the more different ways of altering your play experience you would unlock. And many of these were in reaction to things like, as uh, Sienter noted, like you fall off the road enough times, you'll get the ability to turn the road off. It should also be noted that it doesn't matter what options you have on, you can still unlock stuff. So if you're, for example, finding uh, some particular challenge very difficult, like beat the game without dying, yeah, uh, which is I think is one. That and, is one of them. And is rather difficult off of native start of the game capabilities you can do things like put yourself with double health always ultra charged and uh leader yellow who yes. flies and turn off the road or whatever and just go around zipping around with your laser sword destroying everything in sight yep and you can unlock not dying that way so um think of it kind of like how goldeneye and 64 worked where there'd be challenges for the levels and these un unlock cheats except you can use the cheats to unlock more cheats and they're not actually cheats they're part of the game Exactly. And so I'd say that about covers the overall concept of the game design and a lot of the things that we were really looking for out of Highway to the Moon from a, from a design standpoint. And one of the things that I had to highlight is that we had an idea at the start of what the game would be, and it became, it became more than that as it went along. Um, is what I will say. Yeah, it turned out things like having a powerful AI scripting system, mm -hmm. as was mentioned in the previous podcast about tools, go listen to it if you haven't already, enabled so many features and functionality. It allowed the bosses to be far more interesting, um, the levels to be a lot more interesting and complex, and all sorts of things. So the tools really enabled the game to be more than it originally was uh, 
concepted to be, which was fantastic. Yeah, and I think if there's any lesson to take from that, it's just the concept that as you're developing any game, you need to keep abreast of the development process, of everything that's happening, and be aware of what it's becoming, because that will inform you as to what direction to go in. Yeah, for example, if you'd built the game with trying to force in the way jump would have worked, except we had phase, it would have been a different game. Indeed. Um, Also, addition to that is that, especially for smaller games, iterative design, where you build part of the game, take a step back and go, what does this change? Okay, now we're going to change the game to more reflect that or, you know, use that or whatever, is usually better than, you know, planning everything out ahead of time and then just building that. Yeah. Because you don't know how it's going to work until you have it working. Yeah, making a game is fundamentally about problem solving, only the problem you're trying to solve is what is fun. Uh, And that turns out to be a fairly philosophical problem, and you come up with a lot of ideas for what you think is fun, and then you implement those, and then you try to determine if they're actually fun, or if a few more coats of... Yeah, or if a few more coats of paint will allow them to be fun, or if you have a complete dud on your hands. Yeah, just because it came to my mind. What is fun? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. What What is fun? (laughs) <laughs> but a miserable pile of secrets. <laughs> so, as you can probably tell, we're winding down here. We're going to go ahead and move on to the sign-off. Um, our, we have one last cast on the subject of Highway to the Moon. It's the level design talk and uh, a little bit of a wrap-up. So, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, let the guys sign off. Santier, signing off. Dusty, signing off. And this is Redco, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos. <laughs>